0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When we talk about the work of Christ in us and in his church, when we talk about grace as a gift, we often say things like this. We'll say that grace comes with no strings attached. Does that sound like familiar language? Kind of. We kind of expect Jesus just does something for us and it's not based on our worth and that's good and that's right and it's true, but it might be a bit misleading to just say that our relationship with Jesus has no strings attached, especially when we read through the New Testament and we read through it carefully. We find that Jesus has a lot of expectations for his people, doesn't he? And Jesus does things in the life of his people for the purpose of our shared ministry so that we can engage one another. And one of the ways he does this, and one of the ways that his ministry comes to us with obligations and expectations, and yes, even strings attached, is through the gifts that he gives to his people, to his church. And so Ephesians chapter 4 is one of several passages in the letters of Paul, along with 1 Corinthians 12 and some others, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And a lot of us are interested in spiritual gifts. And maybe we've wondered what our spiritual gifts are. And maybe some of us have taken spiritual gifts inventories even and and have tried to discern these things. Or maybe we just know, like, here's something the Lord has given me, whether it's teaching or hospitality or or other kinds of things. We need to also ask, though, why Jesus gives spiritual gifts. And that's the question that Paul is dealing with in Ephesians chapter 4. Why does Jesus give gifts to His people? Why does He do it? And the thing that we we discover is that those gifts are not just for us. They are for the building up of the whole church. And so we could put it this way. We could say that the gifts we receive from Jesus are the same gifts we give to the church. The gifts I receive from Christ are gifts he intends me to offer to you. And the gifts you receive from him are gifts he intends all of us to offer to one another. And so for Paul, spiritual gifts, the gifts that Jesus gives, are not ends in and of themselves right it's not a hey here's a gift enjoy it it's hey here's a gift and here's the purpose for it for the life of the church as a whole and we see that because paul's talk of gifts from christ from the resurrected christ in ephesians 4 is lodged in a very big picture vision of the life of the church. It's lodged within this bigger picture of Jesus' agenda for the church. So what does Jesus want for His church? What's His agenda? What's He after? What are His purposes? Ephesians 4 opens with this exhortation. Paul even says, I am begging you at this point to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's where the whole series title in Ephesians Uh, as we're preaching through it, uh, comes from because you're called. This is about the calling of the church to live into Jesus' purposes. And Paul says, you've got this calling from Jesus and your lives are supposed to embody a certain set of values. Right, Live in a manner that's consistent with your calling. Live worthy of the calling that Jesus has called called you with. And what does that look like? Well, he goes on in verse two, it looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like patience when the audio visuals don't work. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes, but it seemed like an appropriate time. to Bearing with one another in love. Just this morning, I was a thoroughly delighted to hear some of you talking about your band meetings. If you're new to Hope Hole UMC, uh, we have a number of bands, but they're not musical bands. They're small groups of people who gather every week or every other week to say, how is it with your soul? Think of it this way. We're banding together to bear one another in love. And it was such a joy to me to hear some of you say, I've never been in a group like this, and it was amazing, and it it is amazing. It's become a crucial part of my life, and, and my band is so important, and we care for each other. And that's the sort of way we begin to embody the vision of the Christian life that Paul is describing here in the opening verses of Ephesians 4. He wants the Ephesians, he wants all Christians to bear one another in love, you know, and sometimes that means getting in each other's business in love you know maybe you come to that band meeting and well i'm struggling in this area of my life and and maybe somebody says well you know i've seen some red flags there i love you but that means i'm not going to kind of sugarcoat our relationship there's some warning signs and let's talk about that and let's try to get back on a healthier pathway following jesus so bearing one another in love doesn't mean just kind of rubber stamping each other's issues Maybe sometimes it means saying, hey, I see some issues and I care about you so much that I want to pray for you and try to help you in this time. And and so and I I expect the same from you for me. So Paul expects a church who can, with gentleness and humility, kind of maybe get in each other's business a little bit, not for the sake of kind of self-seek, self gratifying gossip but for the sake of the holiness of the people of God. So he's got this big vision. It's a vision marked by unity. All through Ephesians, we've heard Paul just hammer again and again and again on the unity of the people of God. And now he's summing that up across the nations, across ethnic groups. He says Jesus died to create unity. And so again, this is part of his vision for the church. A church marked by unity, marked by this one spirit, one body, one hope, all of these these things come together for Paul's vision of the church, but that's not the end of his vision. At the end of Ephes or not the end of Ephesians four, but the end of the passage we just read this morning, he says, when all of those things come together, right, Gentleness and bearing one another and caring for each other, and humility, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, when those things come together and when we receive the gifts that Christ offers us and we're going to live into the purposes of those gifts, then we find the church is growing in maturity. And that's the really the heart of discipleship. He says our goal here in verse 13 is for the people of God to grow up into the full measure of the stature of Jesus. Paul doesn't want immature followers of Jesus. He wants mature followers of Jesus. He wants people who gather to worship, people who band together to care for one another in love and pray for each other and read the Bible together and and exhort one another and maybe correct one another from time to time with gentleness and humility. He says in verse 14, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. And we've kind of, you know, we're used to that sort of thing. I mean, just scroll through social media or watch a little bit of TV and you see deceitful scheming and you see craftiness and you get all of these voices vying for our attention and trying to sell us things and there are schemes that are aimed at our manip- at manipulating us. And Paul says we don't need to be taken in by all of the craziness. We need to be grown up in Jesus full measure. And that's His vision for the church. The question then becomes, how does he get what he wants? How do we get to that kind of church? What does it look like? And Paul says that's where the gifts come in. That Jesus has given his people sets of gifts for the purpose of maturing, strengthening, edifying, building up his church, his people. Gifts are not ends in themselves. It's not Jesus saying, hey, O'Reilly, here's a gift for you. Go home by yourself and enjoy it. Like, like we might give gifts to one another and, you know, hey, some of you gave me a birth, birthday gifts last week and I'm, I'm looking forward to making use of those things. And, and it's more kind of a, this is for me, not for others. But that's not how these gifts work, is it? These gifts are given as a means to the end of the strengthening of the church. The gifts we receive from Jesus are the gifts we give to the church. Now, it's important to understand that gifts in the ancient world are very different than they are now, right? Because as we observed a few minutes ago, when we give gifts, typically we think of gifts as being a no-strings-attached kind of thing. I give you something, I give you a a gift at a birthday or a Christmas or just something, I don't necessarily expect anything in return. Maybe thank you, but you're not obliged to do anything. You may feel like, well, they gave me a gift, now maybe I should do something to reciprocate, but that's not a massively huge value in our culture. Gifts are just gratuitous, aren't they? Like, you don't owe anybody, you don't owe somebody anything who gives you a gift. In the ancient world, however, it was radically different. In the ancient world, gifts came with every string attached. If someone gave you something, you owe them something. If someone gives you a gift, you owe them some sort of honor. You owe them some sort of benefit. You owe them some sort of gift in return, and that may come in different, uh, different kinds of expressions, but you had to do something. And if you didn't do something, your status in society plummets and you dishonor the person who's giving you a gift because you've actually said whatever they did for you isn't worth responding. So in the ancient world, every time the word gift shows up, we should never think of it as purely gratuitous gift. Interestingly, the word grace in our English translations is just the word gift in Greek. So when Paul says in verse 7, each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, we read that in the 21st century and we, get, we think Jesus is amazingly gracious and he gives us this gift like unconditionally, no strings attached. Right? No one in the ancient world reads that that way. No one in Ephesus goes, hey, Jesus gave us this gift. No conditions, no strings attached, no expectations. No one thinks that way in the ancient world. They think the exact opposite. They think Christ has given us a gift. How do we respond? What do we do with that? What what is our obligation? What is our duty? What is our responsibility? How do we... He has honored us, because gifts honor people. He's honored us. How do we return? How do we reciprocate that honor? It's it's also important to know that the status of the giver shapes the way you reciprocate the gift, right? So if a, a local official in your city, like a mayor or somebody honors you with a gift, then you need to honor them in return. But the extent to which you honor them in return, the extent to which you reciprocate that gift or that honor, is not as demanding as if the emperor himself gave you a gift. So if the ultimate king of the empire honors you in some way, then you need to figure out a way very quickly to honor him, and your imagination probably isn't big enough. It needs to be bigger and better and more than you can imagine because gifts in the ancient world put the recipient under obligation. And when the New Testament uses the language of gift, that's what it means. That's the world we live in. That's the world they live in, and it's the world we need to reckon with to understand what the Bible actually says. So, Paul says of Jesus, remember this status thing is really important. Turns out the one who's given you gifts, Jesus, has ascended to the highest place, not just in town, not just in the empire, but in the entire universe. Paul says that Jesus ascended above the heavens, and his ascension above the heavens. Comes in a certain view of the universe, right? You may have noticed as we've read through Ephesians that Paul's got a few tears. He mentions how Jesus, in his incarnation, descended to the lower parts, and it's not the, like whenever you get these lower parts of the earth kind of grammatical things that could be shaped out in a few different ways. Like we talk about um, any 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 phrases with the word "of" in them could be interpreted in different ways you might say, um, the fear of Bonnie, and that could mean Bonnie's own fear, or it could mean the fear we feel when we're in her presence, because that's how we feel when we're around you, right? (laughs) Everyone knows that's not true, which is why it was a good illustration, right? So that of language could mean different things, and so we come to this, he descended, verse 9, to the lower parts of the earth, and it could be you know, maybe we're thinking his, his crucifixion and his burial, and maybe that's some sort of under-the-earth thing. What's probably going on is it's the lower parts that is the earth, lower parts of the cosmic structure. Because earlier in Ephesians, we hear about some cre- creatures that inhabit the air, and that's powers and principalities and the devil, right? The heavens, there's that kind of middle realm. So you've got the earth, that's the lower realm. That's where we live. Then you've got The heavens, which is kind of in the middle, and that's where spiritual forces they inhabit that space. That's in Ephesians three, and then you've got Jesus who has ascended not to the heavens, interestingly, but above them. So you've got these three levels: lower parts, that is the earth, and then you've got the heavens, and that's where sort of secondary spiritual creatures live. That's where Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And in chapter 3, verse 10, you have rulers and authority in the heavenly places. All right, so Jesus, having been raised from the dead on the first Easter, has ascended beyond the lower parts to which he descended in his incarnation when he took on flesh, born of Mary in Bethlehem. He's now Raised from the dead, he has ascended, and he's not just gone back to that second level, that second tier where other spiritual creatures live and inhabit and demons and powers and the devil, those kinds of things. He's been exalted above the heavens. Interestingly, because we think about Jesus being in heaven, except here he's above the heavens. So we got to let the Bible kind of shape the way we talk about things. Paul's point is that Jesus has ascended to a place that is higher in status than any other power or authority you could even possibly begin to consider. Like the Roman Empire does not have an emperor who reigns above the heavens. He reigns in the lower parts, doesn't he? He just reigns on earth where Rome has built its empire. He doesn't reign in the heavens, which is where the authorities and the powers and demonic forces inhabit. He has been exalted and has ascended after his resurrection above the heavens and there is no other force no other power human or spiritual visible or invisible that reigns where jesus reigns or that inhabits the space he inhabits he reigns above every other tier of authority and so if you owe the emperor a certain level of reciprocation when he gives you gifts and he rules in this lower part, how much more does Jesus deserve in terms of honor and recipro- reciprocity given that he reigns above the heavens in the highest possible place? Because in the ancient world, when someone gives you a gift, the way you respond to that gift should correspond to their status. And Jesus' status is infinitely higher than anyone else in the cosmos so paul wants us to understand and embrace that when jesus does something for us when he gives us gifts in certain measures those gifts don't come with no strings attached it's not hey here's a gift enjoy it see you later it's hey here's a gift, and here's how I want you to use it for the building up of my body, my church. Ephesians is deeply focused on the life of the church. A mature church, a whole church, a strong church. One church that's not just kind of knocked around when things don't go our way. A church that is marked by the full measure of Christ. And Paul says the way Jesus gets that kind of church is by giving gifts. Not as an end in themselves, not as just for me and my fun enjoyment to, hey, Jesus gave me this gift. Great. It's an other-oriented gift. It's a selfless gift. It's not, hey, look at me. I've got the gift of teaching. Or, hey, look at me. I've got this other gift, which it looks like in some of the churches he wrote to, that's the kind of thing that was happening. Paul says, that's not the point Gift of apostleship or prophecy, whatever it is. It's not, hey, look at me. It's, hey, how can I strengthen you? The gifts we receive from Jesus, the gifts we receive from him, are the gifts we give to the church. So in Ephesians, he gives us five, he speaks of five gifts. And they come in verse 11. And they are for the purpose of strengthening the people of God. So he gives them so they can be given back to the church. And they are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Sometimes that last those last two pastors' teachers get lumped together, and there's some reasons for that. But you get you because well, you see how pastors overlap with teachers every week, right? But these are gifts that Jesus gives. And we'll just say a few things briefly about the nature of these gifts. Um Apostles in the New Testament tend to be the front lines, tend to be kind of the the people who show up in a place first with the gospel, like Paul showing up in Corinth. He's the apostle to the nations. He's planting a church. Peter, apostle to the Jewish peoples. he's, He's the front lines. He's the first one going out. These are folks who have been commissioned by Jesus, and they are kind of the the front, the end of the spear, so to speak. They are the front lines. They are planning churches, and they're doing that kind of ministry and missionary work. Somebody like that today might be church planners. Folks who are saying, you know, where does the church not have a presence? Where, where are the pockets in our society or in the world where the gospel hasn't really broken in yet where are those people who haven't been reached with the good news where are the people who don't who can't read the Bible in their own language yet and how can we get it to them it may take some creativity we might need some entrepreneurial spirit getting involved in these kinds of things but but how do we get the gospel to those kinds of places uh, I, I was I was uh reflecting yesterday on kind of the future of the Methodist movement and we're in many ways preparing for that as uh, a new denomination is formed, uh, probably next year. And uh, I was reflecting, we had a chance, Naomi and I, to, to spend some time with Manny and Ruthie Boston yesterday and their kids. He'll be coming on staff with us in May as full-time family pastor. And we were just kind of chatting about the future, and I was saying, you know, I'd love the idea of maybe Hope Hole and maybe a couple of other churches partnering to plan a church in some other place you know i'm not a church planner i don't think that's my calling but the church has got to be creatively reproducing doesn't it it's got to be and maybe we don't have the resources by ourselves to do that but maybe in a new expression of our wesleyan movement that's not sort of bagged, bogged down by institutional infighting maybe we can connect with some other like-minded vision-oriented churches and say hey you know what We got a little bit of resources. You got a little bit of resources. There's a place where the gospel hasn't made a deep impact. What if we plant a church there together? What would that look like? It's new. I know. I get it. Never done that before. But that's what this kind of gift is all about. We've never done it quite that way. We've never been. I mean, I imagine Peter and Paul were sitting around. (laughs) They actually got in some conflict because we'd never done it that way before. If you read Galatians, gift that Jesus gives his church to forge new spaces for new people to come into fullness in Christ. So I don't know what that looks like yet, but I bet we have enough creative people and mission passionate people that when the day comes and the Lord says, here's what we're going to do, you'll be ready. I have confidence in that. Some prophets if you read through the Old Testament, you read the prophets, <laughs> they are not always popular people. And so if, like, this, this is like, if you feel this gifting, you may not feel good about it. <laughs> a lot of times they're speaking corrective exhortations into the life of the people of God. And a lot of times it doesn't work out very well for them. Sometimes they get killed. But there's a gift that Jesus gives to strengthen his body because sometimes the church needs to hear, hey, we're driving in the wrong lane hey, we need to make a shift in the way we're doing this. Or hey, we're using some resources in a way and it's not bearing fruit and we need to rethink how we're doing that. It may not always be popular, but hey, the Lord has given some people that vision and that gift to speak into those situations. Evangelists uh, are people who are particularly gifted in talking with other people about their faith in Jesus. Maybe you've known some people who, you know, they're, they're chatting with somebody. Maybe they just met someone, and all of a sudden, three minutes later, the conversation shifts to Jesus, and it was smooth, and it doesn't feel forced, and it's not like, a, hey, let me give you three points of evangelism, not that sort of thing, but it's just this like, wow, how did we get there? It's really rich. That person is probably gifted in this area. That doesn't get all the rest of us off the hook, by the way, just to be clear. <laughs> Uh, you, like, sometimes people will say I don't share my faith much Evangelism's not my gift The trouble is it's also commanded everywhere It's just you know lucky for some of you It is a gift and it's easy The rest of us have to work really hard at it So just because evangelism is a gift Doesn't mean we don't all have to do it It just works out you know A lot more fruitfully for some others One time I uh, sat down on a bench And was trying to chat with a guy about Jesus uh, In downtown Union Springs And as soon as I said the word Jesus He just got up and walked away It's very discouraging But that doesn't mean you stop. You just, to some evangelists, and you just keep doing that work. Some pastors and teachers. Probably don't really have to explain what that's about since we're doing it right now. But some folks are given gifts and set aside to lead and organize the ministry of the church. Uh, I'm grateful to live into this role and I'm reminded almost daily that any gift that, may, that Jesus may have given me isn't for me. It's for the life of His people. The role is about helping the people of God encounter God in His work, in His Word, in transformative ways. And the church needs people who can set aside the time to dig into the text of Scripture and learn and study and discover the riches that are there so that we all who are not set aside for that can benefit from them in knowing the Lord more deeply. And so those are gifts given not for one's own personal satisfaction but for the life of the church. The gifts we receive from Jesus are the gifts we give to the church. These, these lists are, you may be thinking, well, I don't have any of those gifts, so what do I do? Well, there are others in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12. We may read a few, a few of those. Um, but the lists are not exhaustive. They are representative. So Jesus gives people gifts and passions, and they may not be things that are just on one of the lists. But they are there, and they are given by his grace, and they are for the life of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, he mentions a variety of gifts, manifestations of the Spirit, he calls them, to some an utterance of wisdom, to other an utterance of knowledge, uh, to some healing, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discernment of spirits, various kinds of tongues, Others, the interpretation of tongues. So there's a lot of things going on there. Some we may have experience with. Some we may not. But the point is that Jesus, when he gives gifts, gives broadly. And he gives gifts in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And he gives gifts in all sorts of forms. Some gifts are oriented towards the administration of the church. And I'm grateful to have folks around who are good at that. Some gifts, some folks are giving gifts for music. And we're grateful, and we all know very well that that is a gift that is given back to us, and we're, th- and we're thankful. No matter what the gift is, no matter what it is, it's never given with no strings attached just for me and myself, solo. It's always given, always, with the expectation that we will offer it to the church for the strengthening of the church, for the maturing of the church. We must never forget that it is the resurrected Jesus who gives these gifts. With no Easter, you get no gifts. No Easter, you get no church. No Easter, you get nothing. Like if Jesus is dead in the tomb, we don't have this gathering. We don't talk about how He's at work. If He's dead in the tomb as if His bones have decayed, He has not ascended above the heavens. He has no status. He's a corpse. And so as I was reading through this passage, kind of prepping for this sermon, thinking about what's it like to preach this passage on Easter, I'm thinking like all of this, is null and void apart from this day. I love to think about what it might be like to be in the tomb the moment before Jesus is raised from the dead. Have you ever thought about that? Take a minute and maybe consider what it would be like. You're in the tomb with a dead body. I know it's a little little creepy, but there you are. dark, not much light. The stone hasn't been rolled away yet. And in the darkness and in the quiet, you think you see some movement. Surely it can't be though. He's dead. (laughs) You saw the nails and the thorns and the Whip and the spear—you saw all of it. You knew, you know what happened, and yet there again, you see—it looks like a little bit of like, like he's breathing. Imagine what it would be like to be in the tomb on Easter morning, fifteen seconds before God raised Jesus from the dead. And there's a musician, Andrew Peterson, wrote a song kind of from that perspective. And there's this one line that I. Every time I hear it, I feel undone. Because there's this like his heart beats and his lungs begin to expand. And then he says, This the blood that bought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And we think about the blood of Jesus, don't we? But we don't really think about like red blood cells and white blood cells and we don't think about DNA. I don't even know what blood is even composed of. One of you nurses can tell me later. But but we don't, I mean. We talk about the blood of Jesus in abstract, like it's just this thing in our imagination. But imagine what it's like for Jesus to be laying in the tomb, flatlined. And all of a sudden, boom, boom. And those cells begin to move. And that blood begins to flow. And it's the same blood that poured out of his body on Friday. And it's the same blood that he pleads before the Father on our behalf. And it's real blood. And it's racing through his body. Imagine what it would be like to be there in that moment. When our redemption and new creation, when our redemption is complete and new creation is launched. That's the Jesus who reigns above the heavens. That's the Jesus who offers you gifts. He is living. He is ascended. He is Lord over all things. He has purposes for his church, and he has given us the things we need to accomplish his purposes. We won't accomplish his purposes if we take the things he's given us and keep them to ourselves, you know no strings attached. We will be in a position to live into his purposes when we embrace the reality that whatever he gives us, whatever we receive from him, is meant to be given to one another. The question then is, like, what's he giving you? And a lot of times when people come to me and say, you know, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Like, what, I don't, how do I figure that out? And there's, you know, tests on the internet and things like that. My first question is, what do you love to do? Like, like if you could just do whatever you, whatever, and you didn't have to worry about paying bills or anything, like, any of that. Like, what would you do? Maybe I'd plant a church. Maybe I'd run a hospitality ministry. Maybe I'd go up and answer phones on Tuesday morning while the staff meets or something like that. I mean, there's all, like, what do you, what just brings joy to your life? Some of you have begun uh, serving at Women's Hope Medical Clinic. It's what the, the baby bottles are for, and you've participated in that offering over Lent. I'm so grateful for that. And you've come back to me and said, it is such a joy to be a part of this. Maybe that's your gift. Maybe your gift's evangelism. Maybe you're one of those people who, are like, it's really easy to just start talking about Jesus, and when you do, people are responding, like, I want to know that guy. Tell me more. That's your gift. Maybe your gift is preaching, and we just haven't figured it out yet. Let's find out. <laughs> what do you love to do, and what would you do if you could do anything in the world? Chances are that will begin to shed some light on the thing that Jesus has given you, that He desires for you to give back to his church. If you can figure it out, I'd love to hear about it. What has he given you? The one who has ascended above the heavens. And take just a moment to consider the honor that Christ has done us. The one who has ascended above the heavens, who reigns above every authority, who offered himself for us, who was raised to defeat our enemy, who loves us and cares for us and ministers to us, who doesn't gaze down upon us from some distance, frustrated and offended, but extends his nail-scarred, resurrected hands to us saying, here's what I want to do for you. What are you going to do with it? That's really the invitation, isn't it? Jesus has done something for you. What will you do with it? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.